This is the Flannery Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our second episode. This has been quite a week in, uh, in politics, and this is the uh, second episode of our podcast. And I think what we'll do today is try to talk about the election, but also talk about what's happening in the courts and, uh, and the recent attacks on the Attorney General justified for how he's been manipulating the process to do what he would do for his only client, Mr. Trump and his crime syndicate. And finally, I have a, a short about a, a nice event that occurred in court. So uh, I think you'll find it interesting. And I do hope that you'll let me know what you'd like me to talk about. Although, believe me, <laughs> I have plenty that I have on my mind to talk about. Let's start with the man of the hour, Vice President Joe Biden. Some Democrats in recent elections are certain it was their policies that won them seats in the General Assembly here in Virginia and installed them in local offices across the Commonwealth. And that could be well understood, but I think something else was operating. In truth, at least for a political season or two, independents and Republicans have found a behavior among the Dem candidates that was not in evidence in their grand old party, and I mean that respectfully, and it proved persuasive uh, to voters who are not dyed-in-the-wool Dems, hardly. I think there's a yearning in the nation for respect in public and private disagreement, for a more professional demeanor in the way we speak and write, to communicate important matters of state and the right media. Yeah, not on Twitter. A hunger for the regular order, for normalcy, an aversion to chaos, impulse, a preference for our leaders to follow the law, and the Constitution, a hope, in other words, that we shall reset our nation, resume the standards by which the nation once functioned, even if imperfectly, as it appeared to do so, before there was a Donald Trump, a failed casino operator and a reality TV star who took to the political stage. There's an exchange uh, that I like that fits from um, Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, in which Sir Thomas More's son-in-law, William Roper, tells More that he should take the oath that King Henry VIII demands, though it offends More's strong religious beliefs as a Catholic. More objects that Roper would cut down every law to get at the devil. Roper confirms it. He confesses, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. More objects that Roper would cut down every law to get at the devil and when the last law was down and the devil turned, and if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think that you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? That's our challenge. Our laws are being torn down. They don't exist for Trump or his cronies. Our constitution is being ignored. Look at the spineless members of the Republican Party except for one senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, and even he couldn't vote for both 
of the wrongdoings encapsulated in the articles of impeachment. So it's not Republican or Democratic to ignore the laws in the Constitution. Indeed, uh, across time in this nation, certainly in my lifetime, even Re Richard Nixon, after violating the law, found that he had to respect the process that led to his resignation. Trump appears to be exploiting an anger in the nation, a brutality, a lower force, a craven bias that perhaps has always been with us, coexisting side by side with our uneven efforts over time, our advances, if you will, to perfect our nation, to perfect this union. When Vice President Joe Biden announced he was running, Almost immediately, though, there had been no indications before dark forces were set in motion by Trump. And those in the loop, as has been the term used to describe those who work with, conspired with the president and his subalterns to bribe the Ukrainian president to conduct a faux investigation, a false investigation of Senator Joe Biden and his son. Trump asked a favor to gain electoral advantage in these presidential elections. And should Ukraine decide not to cooperate, well, then they wouldn't get the $391 million in military aid to protect them against the Russian aggression in eastern Ukraine. We would have never known about it if it hadn't been for a whistleblower who alerted the nation to the plot, and that didn't come out so easily. Did Trump succeed anyhow? That's one of the questions. During the presidential primaries, after these disclosures, after the impeachment, Biden struggled to get a political footing, to get anything like momentum. And so perhaps this dirty work, this trick, did its work. In recent days, we've learned from Trump's director of national intelligence that the Russians were interfering in our election, in the primaries, favoring Senator Bernie Sanders. Trump damaged the campaign of the man he didn't want to challenge, Biden, and the candidate he preferred to run against was getting help, undescribed in terms of details, how exactly the interference is working to this day, and from the Russians. If this feels like an old plot from 2016, it is. By the way, as you all know, <laughs> Trump fired the man who disclosed the information that showed us that the Russians were interfering in the election. At uh, Trump's robust rallies, Trump has encouraged his rabid MAGA followers to cross over and vote for Sanders in the Democratic primaries and caucuses. Not only has he done it and asked people at his rallies who he should uh, be encouraging to run on the Democratic side as the weakest opponent. In South Carolina, members of the Republican Party went on the air and told their membership to do just that, to cross over. And we have that video, and we have that sound. Interestingly, that's where the race turned toward Joe. want the independent senator from Vermont as their nominee. We're asking South Carolina Republicans to show their support for President Trump by crossing over and voting in the Democratic primary for Senator Bernie Sanders. We feel this may help move the needle in closing our primaries in South Carolina. Help us help President Trump by going to your polling location on Saturday, February 29th 
and voting for independent Bernie Sanders to be the Democrat nominee. All of a sudden, it all came together. The combination of the Russian interference, the normalcy and reset that Biden promised, his long history in the state in South Carolina, it all came together. Biden exploded with a lead in South Carolina over Sanders, and it was about 30 points. He made the choice clear. He said in words or substance, talk about revolution isn't changing anyone's life. He said we need real changes right now. The choice for Super Tuesday that was following fast upon the heels of the South Carolina vote was, do we want revolution, Bernie Sanders, or do we want to reset and consider reform after we've restored the republic to a good place again of law and of order? What could Biden do now? With South Carolina in his rearview mirror, he came into Super Tuesday. Other candidates deferred to Biden, suspended their campaigns, and supported him. You all know of... Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg did so, and so did uh, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. I attended a rally for Buttigieg before he made that announcement because I was thinking of him as a possible candidate. He had a lot to offer. His supporters spoke well of him. And I did talk to some of them, and I did record and what's it. what's your name? My name is Suzanne McKee. And Suzanne, why are you here? I am here because, believe it or not, I've always been Republican, and Mayor Pete has drawn me to the Democratic side. And I think that he has much more to offer than anybody else out there right now, and I think he is the candidate to put Trump out of business. And why did you leave the Republicans? Mayor Pete, what I'm hearing from Mayor Pete, I think he's going to help the middle class, I think he's used to diversity, and I think he's just got the all-around knowledge and the common sense of what this America needs. Thank you. Thank you. There are magic moments in politics and law and life, and it sort of captures everything that's going on. And Biden made a comparison when receiving the endorsement from Buttigieg and from Amy, and he talked about how Buttigieg reminded him of his son, one of those moments. And you just don't see that kind of thing in politics. And if you saw the, view, the video, you could see Buttigieg reacting to it in the background, obviously touched. That was a magic moment in the sense that it spoke about the real values of people who were transparent to our view and our hearing and our understanding of what this all meant to them. I'm looking for a leader. I'm looking for a president who will draw out what is best in each of us. And I'm encouraging everybody who was part of my campaign to join me because we have found that leader in Vice President, soon to be President, Joe Biden. I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, Pete's endorsement. And I know for Pete's supporters, from the mayor to many other people who are here, this is also a bittersweet moment because you, uh, you supported a man of enormous integrity. A fellow who uh, has as much uh, moral courage as he has physical courage. I don't think I've ever done this before, but uh, he reminds me of my son, Bo. 
Uh, and I know to, that may not mean much to most people, but to me it's the highest compliment I could give any man or woman. And that is that, um, like Bo, he, uh, he had a backbone like he has a backbone like a ramrod. I warned Pete that if I were lucky enough to get the nomination, that I would be asking him to join. I would ask him to be involved in this process. Because there are a generation of leaders of Pete's age, like my son Bo, who have unlimited potential. Buttigieg said, what made Biden the right man for this political season? Sanders, by this time, was flat-footed, but so were party officials and pundits from sea to shining sea, if you will. What was happening? Something truly super. Super Tuesday was a triumph. Joe took the lead in delegates, and he did so with little money in his campaign coffers and close to home here in Virginia where I'm speaking. He had only one campaign office in the entire state. Ask anybody who's ever run a campaign what that means. Biden had become a force. And I think, I think the explanation is there's this hunger for comity, getting along, for a reset in our society rather than a revolution. And it was just sitting there waiting. People told me, and I felt the same way, that when Biden was accepting the endorsements, it was like a place of peace in a world of chaos, certainly a nation of chaos. Well, the public on Super Tuesday came out in numbers, larger numbers than 2016 in the primary. They wanted to be heard. And there were those encouraging Republicans to cross over and to vote for Sanders in Virginia, for instance, and probably elsewhere. But what the crossover was, there were also Republicans who came out and crossed over to vote for Biden. This is becoming an election not about personal ambition as reflected by the endorsements or about a partisan tribal way. It's about how do we repair and put together this nation again. And I think that what we saw across the country on Super Tuesday was a vote for us to take care to preserve and protect our union. But, you know, as all things go, as I'm talking, we're waiting to see how goes the next round, and I don't know. Um, but we do have Michigan next up, and uh, we would all hope that this continues. At least I do. Those who hear me and support what I'm saying probably feel the same way. At the same time that we have this uh, suspense about whether Joe will hold and whether um, you know, Bernie can find a, an inroad for his own campaign, the Republican Senate, we're told, is now going to investigate Biden in the Ukraine. Of course, he's become central stage. He's back to when uh, Trump sought to hurt him, you know, now months ago. And uh, we're going to have more of the same. And another disappointing thing, though, is Senator Romney has said, although he voted to impeach Trump, he's signing off on a subpoena for Biden to appear before the Senate. Well, this backfired in the past when such abuse was made of investigations and perhaps it'll happen here again because at each time when we invoke what happened in the Ukraine, we remind the nation of what Trump did that prompted impeachment 
that led to a show trial without witnesses. Of course, rogue operator Rudy Giuliani, though under investigation in one prosecutor's office, my old office in New York, the Southern District of New York, is depositing his findings in a second U.S. Attorney's office all about what he, quote, found, close quote, in Ukraine that implicates Biden. The lies are big. The deception's great. The belief in our nation is a place of laws and constitution in which no man is above the law is at risk. There is some justice here, I suppose. Trump always wanted to stifle Biden and run against Sanders. Now these two men are in the fight for their political lives and for the life of the nation as a republic. May the honest man win, and we know who that is. One young lady, lady uh, rather, voting for the first time in uh, Maryland's primary said she knows who she's voting for and why. She said, because Biden will bring us together. What's your name? Catherine Phillips. And Catherine, are you going to be voting in the Maryland uh, primary for yes. the Dems? Yes. Yes, for sure. And uh, who are you going to vote for? Do you know yet? Um, I'm leaning towards Biden, probably. Um, I think he really had a way of bringing um, everyone together in, as a country um, from all different backgrounds. Um, and I think it's something we need after the last administration we had. And when you talk about the last administration, you're talking about the president administration? The current, yes, <laughs> it would be the current. Well, if you could characterize the president administration that you think we have to remedy, what would that be? Um, I think it definitely has created a lot of um, distinct lines of separation between, and it's definitely forced certain groups apart from each other, I think, rather than unifying them. So you think that uh, Biden is a uniter? I think, I would say so, okay. out of the current nominees. Okay, well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Stay tuned. I have a couple of other ideas I'd like to talk about with you. The next issue I'd like to discuss with you are the courts, and not just because I'm a lawyer, but also because I'm a citizen and a person that I believe rules matter and that precedent matters, meaning that what a court has done before in the identical or similar circumstance should be followed in the present. We already have a president who has bludgeoned one department of the three, that is the U.S. Congress. The Senate does what he demands they do. Out of fear in part, for fear of having a primary, and uh, who knows what information maybe they have that could be released. It's not clear that there is such a thing. But the second part is the almost cultish devotion to this president. So the executive, who is believed by many Republicans to be a unitary president, meaning there's almost nothing you can do to curb his monarchical tendencies has also turned his attention to the courts to compromise their independence and to compromise what they say, meaning that the impartiality and just decisions that you can expect from a judge are not anything like what Trump wants. And so we have seen that he has put two Supreme Court justices on the court, and those justices deferred to, if you will, his ideology, were chosen for that reason. 
Indeed, one good judge, Garland, was kept in limbo while Obama was concluding his term and a new president was being chosen, which became Trump. And that position that would have gone to Garland had they voted, or it seems likely, instead went to Gorsuch, who sat on the court. The second justice was Mr. Kavanaugh. Uh, he never met a beer he didn't like, but that's not why he was chosen. He had expressed himself in a dissent that favored compromising Roe v. Wade, which is a woman's right of choice, within certain reasonable limitations that the court agreed to long ago. But it doesn't end there. One quarter of the circuit judges, that is, who sit in the various appellate courts across the country, are designated, have been designated with the help of Moscow Mitchell to the court. And I believe the number is presently 187 trial court judges have been appointed. So we are long on notice that Trump attacks not only judges who would, uh, for example, sentence his conspirators in court, think Roger Stone, but also judges who get in the way of his policies. That is, whether it is uh, an overreach in his position as the executive or civil rights and liberties choices that he forces from his position as president. A good example of the former, that is him interfering in a case that has anything to do with investigating his misconduct, is the testimony of Donald McGahn. He was a White House counsel, and we know that he also played a big part, ironically, in choosing the judges, recommending them for the president to nominate so that the Senate, under the control of Moscow Mitch, could approve him. But in, in a recent decision, we see a pattern developing. In the case of uh, Donald McGahn, a subpoena issued by the US Congress for his testimony about obstruction of the original Mueller investigation. And there was a subpoena that issued, and it stood before Justice Jackson in the trial court and the district court, who'd handled the Manafort case and the Stone case. And in that case, uh, Trump had every interest in not letting anyone know that he had obstructed the investigation, and he had every interest in keeping McGahn's testimony mute like he does with so many. When he can't intimidate, he goes into court and spends time on issues that really are not legal. Anyhow, that did not fool uh, the district court. The district court found that he had to testify. And some time ago, there was a case that parallels this case perfectly involving Harriet Myers, who was uh, White House counsel in the Bush administration in 2008. And they tried to limit her testimony back then, but the court decided that there was no appropriate limitation and that she had to testify. Very strong precedent, and the reasoning is ironclad. But what we have is a recent decision by the circuit court, by Judge Griffith, and he said, the court can't consider every question that comes up. Just imagine what we would be doing. It makes me think of Douglas years ago, who on the Supreme Court said they didn't need any more justices that some were proposing at the time. He said he has no trouble doing the work all by himself. 
And once I did apply to be his law clerk, and he told me that two things. One, uh, he doesn't use his law clerks. And secondly, if you don't come from the state of Washington, he doesn't appoint you anyhow. And I was from New York. Not that I would have qualified by, to his standards, but I, I thought he was one of the finest judges we've had in my lifetime. So what did Judge Griffith do with the McGahn subpoena? He says, Congress has no standing, no legal basis to come to this court and ask that a subpoena issue. The courts can't decide the matter. He was stopping them at the courthouse door. The court would have to consider generalized disputes about the operation of government, he said, if they were to grant this subpoena and force McGahn to go testify in the Hill. He claimed the Constitution denied the court that role. He described the fight as a bitter political showdown. And if Congress can enforce the subpoena, they can enforce any subpoena. And you would think, isn't that tautological? Isn't that right? Why do they have any subpoena power unless they can enforce it? As uh, he said, uh, the fact that they might look for more is they've also sought to subpoena the Attorney General, the mouthpiece for Trump, and the Secretary of Commerce, maybe having something to do with uh, Mr. Trump's taxes, which are forever uh, unavailable to us. So, uh, well, not only does the district court contradict all of that, but Judge Rogers in dissent said it was an extraordinary conclusion to say that Congress didn't have any standing, though it was in pursuit of its sole power of impeachment. And certainly it's been decided in the past that what Congress is doing is of a judicial nature, which has been one of the tests for subpoenas and issuing them for investigations by the Senate and the House. The decision, the judge said in dissent, Judge Rogers, was that it defied the founding fathers' checks and balances to distinguish a chief executive from the monarchs of England. The subpoena power the judge said, Judge Rogers, is critical to the efficiency of the impeachment power. So, and of course quoted the Harriet Myers case as an example of why the subpoena should be effective. Now, I point out and lean on the fact that they're trying to deny them at the, jail, at the courthouse door, I almost said jailhouse, very interesting, but it has everything to do with Trump's identity, I think. The, the next, uh, thing that we have before us is we have the question of Trump demanding that two judges on the court recuse themselves and that they not consider a case coming before them. Now that's very interesting for a couple of reasons. Here you have the chief executive interfering in a co-equal branch in a specific case to affect the outcome. And what is the case about? The case is about the right of choice for women. And it's a very interesting case because there are two things about this. First of all, this is not the first time it came up. And the question is whether or not a Louisiana law can write limitations on the facilities for an abortion so narrowly that there is only one place in the state of Louisiana where a woman who decides to exercise choice within the established law across the nation can get it, thereby denying it because of income and distance and 
and the timing of discovery of pregnancy and every other thing that relates to it. Now, so there has been a decision before that said, no problem, that's not right, that's putting a burden on the exercise of a right and you may not do that. But the second thing that's important is to say that the doctors at the, at the various clinics throughout Louisiana who are asserting this claim, do they have standing? In other words, do they have a right to go through the courthouse door to make this argument? Well, that is the argument, and it mirrors a way to get around, if you will, what is going on in our highest court, in the Supreme Court of the United States, and, and the appellate court that did what they did. So uh, the next step is we have, on the day of argument, uh, the minority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, standing outside the courthouse and making a speech. And a lot of people have talked about this, but I think what you should do is you should uh, hear the speech so that you can consider for yourself what Schumer was talking about. And here it is. Inside the walls of this court, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments, as you know, for the first major abortion right cases since Justices Kavanaugh and Justices Gorsuch came to the bench. We know what's at stake. Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women, all women, and they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. The bottom line is very simple. We will stand with the American people. We will stand with American women. We will tell President Trump and Senate Republicans who have stacked the court with right-wing ideologues that you're going to be gone in November and you will never be able to do what you're trying to do now ever, ever again. You hear that over there on the far right? You're gone in November. We are here to send these folks a message not on our watch. So let me ask you, my friends, are we gonna let Republicans undo a woman's right to choose? Are we gonna stay quiet as they try to turn back the clock? Are we gonna give up or waver when things get tough? No, we're gonna stand together in one voice and take a stand on behalf of women and families throughout the country. We're gonna stand against all these attempts to restrict a woman's right to choose, and we will win. Now you can hear from that speech, what he is saying is that if you're gonna to continue to politicize the court so that the individual impartial judgment as to precedent and call and the facts uh, 
in law and the, and the case before the court are not the only considerations, but that a person has been chosen and put on the bench to execute a specific policy and to find that case that will do it. In other words, teleological, meaning to get to a certain objective and the means don't matter as long as the end is achieved, then you have a real problem. And Schumer is saying that if that's what we're gonna have, we have to take care of this in December, in November. We have to elect people, uh, particularly the president who will nominate justices to the court, who will follow the law and make reasonable adjustments and ones that are not ideologically tied. And it's very interesting that uh, they, they go against, uh, the critics go against some of the language of uh, Schumer, and they don't like him talking about when the wind will blow. Well, some of us who are obsessive, and maybe those who would listen to a podcast know this, but you should think about what no less than Kavanaugh said at his own confirmation hearings when he was confronted with a dissent that seemed to help him get picked for the judiciary just because he was speaking about the right of choice in a critical fashion. But then he criticized the very proceeding he was at, and it seemed that he threatened the country with language that Schumer had used that you just heard. Listen to this. You sow the wind. For decades to come, I fear that the whole country will reap the whirlwind. So what I'm saying is that we have a president with a monarchical arch who has compromised the Senate to a point of pure dependency on his will. And we have a president who is bending the courts to his will by the personnel he puts on the bench. And while when he in the past accused this or that judge of bias or prejudice as it suited him, now he is in fact choosing and making judges based on the fact that they will vote as he wishes. That's not acceptable. That is not what we have in a democracy. That is not what it means when all people are equal before the law. And this has got to stop. And that's why I don't think Schumer should have apologized. I think that his language was robust, and I think the only free speech that matters, particularly in these times, is robust. So uh, keep this in mind as we watch further future unfolding abuses because this is what's going on. Oh yeah, and I have a couple more things I'd like to talk to you about, so hang on for a little bit more. We don't have an independent attorney general. I'm talking about William P. Barr. He is and has been since before he was the attorney general, a functionary for Mr. Trump. He wrote a memo they claim was unsolicited in which he basically said the president couldn't obstruct justice. Then he was approved by the Senate, which ignored what he'd written perhaps to get the job or at the behest of the president to help frame the issue of the Mueller investigation. And what did he do? He wrote a note 
And he said, oh, this is what the Mueller investigation showed to us. It showed that there was nothing that the president did wrong. No collusion, no obstruction, and I personally have made the decision that there's no obstruction. Well, the reason that this is now relevant and really should always be relevant because Barr is basically the consulary for Trump rather than the highest law enforcement official trying to manage what's right and just for all Americans. He is the personal lawyer. No other way to describe it for Mr. Trump. In a recent decision by Judge Reggie Walton in DC, who's been looking at a lawsuit brought by Epic, a watchdog group, and BuzzFeed News, which you may consult on a daily basis as you wish or have probably, he said he saw serious discrepancies between Barr's public statements about Mueller's finding. Oh yeah? Well, you can't blame the judge because the judge can't normally go out and speak about something unless he has a case before him. But now he has that case before him and he's deciding what should be unredacted of the redactions by, that is the blackening out of language and information from the report that was finally issued. He wants to have a better look at this and he wants better explanations because he's accused Barr, the Attorney General, of a lack of candor, which would be pretty polite talk from, from my old neighborhood. But he talks about inconsistencies and problems with it, all of which I think has been made public over the months since Barr's efforts to mislead America as to what was in the Mueller report. I say this because we can expect more from Barr. He interferes when and as he can. And the most terrible thing about it is he has 93 U.S. attorneys who answer to him. And what is he doing with them? Is he influencing investigations that have anything to do with this administration? You can be sure. And the biggest question is, what is happening in the Southern District of New York? How long are they going to look at Rudy Giuliani, the former U.S. attorney in that district, when the U.S. attorney is a former law partner of his, when that former law partner is in the Justice Department overseen by Barr? Our nation is in a really terrible place when law applies to all of us, but if you enter this uh, higher atmosphere in which Trump and his cronies exist, the law is whatever they say it is. So. Hang on, I have uh, one other short that I think you'll enjoy. And thanks for listening to my, uh, my podcast. I've enjoyed doing it, and I hope you find it useful. There are some stories that can inspire us. I was in court, sitting in the well of the court, waiting to go into chambers on a civil matter that I was handling. A family was sitting nearby, father, wife, and child. I didn't notice them at first. But this girl presented herself to me. She stood right in front of me and spoke ever so softly. I have a blog, she said and I'd like to interview you for my blog. I agree, but not before I asked her, would you mind telling me how old you are? I know, never ask a lady. She said, still ever so softly, that I had to lean into her to hear, I'm eight years old. She wasn't tall, she was dressed nicely, and she wore 
a string of pearls. She was a little lady. What does a lawyer do, she asked, in a courtroom of high ceilings, paintings of past judges on the wall, and a fair amount of mahogany all about us. We represent the abused and misunderstood, I told her. She nodded. There are cases that involve money and property. And there are other cases that involve reputation, freedom, and penalties. But what do you do, she said. In many cases, I told her, a wrong has been done. A good lawyer fights to make it right. You need someone in the courtroom to keep the process honest. It's not always done right or well. She asked, what about criminal cases? She seemed to have an interest in that. I told her I belong to a group of defense lawyers and our mantra or slogan is that we are liberty's last champions. We fight and have to fight for the liberty of those we represent. I asked her, are you thinking of being a lawyer? She paused, she said, I'm thinking about it. Anything else? No, she said. When I came out of chambers, her mother thanked me. I found this little charmer inspiring. One can only imagine how far she'll go.